The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome to Banjo College Football, the world's most ethical college football podcast. Uh, I'm your head coach, Kevin Paul, joined in uh, soon-to-be-bought-out assistant coaches, Andrew Stevens and Brian Scott Rippey. Fellas, how are y'all? Um, I was told when I was younger to remember how to uh, add um, – negatives like when you were when you were trying to add negative numbers together uh the analogy i always used was uh a good man coming to town is a positive thing so a plus 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 a plus equals a plus um a good man leaving town is a bad thing so a plus and a minus is a minus uh a bad man uh coming to town is a bad thing so a minus and a plus equals a minus but a bad man leaving town now that Two negatives, that makes a positive. So this week we found out that the University of South Carolina, they had a bad man leave town. Um, uh, is Will Muschamp a bad man or is he just – does he just <laughs> does he just throw temper tantrums every now and then? I, he's just, he's two one negative costs you $13 million? I think that's. I do think that's what it ends up costing you, and it, it costs them uh, the rest of the season for J.C. Horn, uh, their uh, first round pick corner, who has decided he is no longer playing since Will Muschamp's not the coach. Will Muschamp is. I, I I was reading, you know, friend of the pod Moon Crew's newsletter today, or it may have just been Spencer Hall's tweets. I forget, but basically, you knew it's you knew, business. You knew this would happen. If you're South Carolina, you knew you would be aggressively average to above average for three and a half to four and a half years. You just that's this life. That's Will Muschamp as a head coach. You, there is no reason for anyone to believe the opposite of that. And here we are. Just you know, <laughs> South Carolina's what two and five. And just and also, if you're a host of Banjo College Football you know this is going to happen because you know that uh, Hugh Freeze needs a new home 
And it really, it really sounds like they're getting the press working out for him because, I mean, a day before we saw Muschamp fired, we we uh, we had the quote from the story they ran on Hugh and the quote of, "Oh shucks, I don't know if anybody else wants me, but I know Liberty does." Which is <laughs> just ass. That's the most like quintessential Hugh Freeze statement of all the time. That was like when he first got to Ole Miss um, and was like. He doesn't have any vices, just a little bit of tobacco, but he's trying to quit with the guy undercover drinks like a fish, but among other things. Um, I was about to say that that was the vice that we were going with was the drinking. Yes. He, okay. used to tell he doesn't really have any vices. He's a pretty straight laced guy. Occasionally he'll throw in a little tobacco, but he's trying to stop because he's little old Hugh Freeze. But can, can, you imagine, can you imagine Clemson and South Carolina with Dabo and Hugh Freeze, like, do you think they just meet at midfield and chuck testaments at each other, like the little that, mini that they that, hand out on campus? That would be just insufferably awesome if that even makes sense. They're just gonna cancel the game and have church and bring and bring down Jerry Falwell Jr. to preach at it. I was about to say the halftime show presented by Joel Osteen. What is this show like? What does this say? Like, you know, the whole narrative we've gotten this whole time, and I still think it will be true to a degree with coaches that are borderline on the hot seat, like do you actually now or do you wait a year? They probably most schools will probably tend to wait a year. But does this start like a little bit of a trend to where it's like, hell, South Carolina's and granted this buyout's relatively small in terms of modern buyouts now, but does this start a trend where no matter school strap for cash or not, you just have a bunch of pissed off boosters that are like, screw it, we're doing this anyway? I, I do think it is funny how South Carolina's handling this because uh, on one hand, I, I do want to say that I don't know how it works in South Carolina, but at a lot of places, the athletic department budget is separate from the school budget, right? So it's not like, you know, your tuition dollars are paying Will Muschamp's buyout. No, some uh, pissed off retired amateur golfer in, uh, you know, Greenville is paying for Will Muschamp's buyout. Exactly. Exactly. But it is hilarious to me that South Carolina, who – as a member of the SEC, makes a lot of money, at least from football TV deals, and makes more money than most schools from baseball and women's basketball. Um, in a pandemic year, though, uh, just when the revenue is just shot compared to the average year and will be shot for years to come just as they try to make this up, just decided they would find the 15 or $13 million to fire Will Muschamp. That's how much they didn't want him there anymore. They are willing to set themselves back probably at least about another month or two <laughs> in terms of getting back to getting back into the black as an athletic department. And I, I'm not sure if y'all are aware, um, there's this thing called the novel coronavirus and it appears to be worse than ever right now. And so I'm not even sure we're going to finish this football season and have their current revenue share be lower than what they actually anticipated it being on a 10-game schedule. Yeah, and it's so funny they didn't even, like, agonize. Like, you know, there was a way you, I guess, could have played this. And I, I don't know why if you're an AD and you had the cash, why you necessarily think about it this way. But there's a way they could have let the season play out you know, pretended to think about it for a while in action, but just this early November game where Ole Miss just runs, you know, 59 points on there. Like, yeah, fuck it. We've seen enough. You're out of here. Just like it's a normal year. Like, they didn't even pretend to agonize over the decision. It just kind of happened. 
<laughs> we have to figure that I mean, we see we see all of this uh, we see all of the the discrepancies between um, all of the billionaires who have gotten rich during the pandemic. You figure that this is all at some point like South Carolina neutral, correct? Like all of the money that's being sucked out of education in the South Carolina economy is being uh, capitalized on by some fucking idiot fail son billionaire who's then eventually just kicking it back to the. Uh, South Carolina Athletic Department, right? The, the, at the end of the day, I think it's just going to be a wash neutral when they hire their new guy. It's what do you like? What is it? What is it? A program like that's expectations. They're going like it was almost like Spurrier was a little bit of a tease, right? They kind of take advantage of what they did. They go to the SEC title game once or twice. Once, once, well, but after, but after, but after they went, they won eleven games three years in a row. So that's the best four year stretch in school history. Right, and like that's it's South Carolina. Like, let's. I, mean, I would say the same thing if that if Hugh Freeze had had the longevity to do that old Miss. It's probably not happening again for a long, long time, barring something ridiculous. And what a weird job, right? Because you have this school that kind of used to be your equal, some you know, just eight years ago almost. That is now the the, the freaking uh, the you know the gold standard in college football. You know, one of the three programs that really are. And like I, I just I don't know like, but but even like, the crazy part is Rippy, that job is so much less appealing though now from when Will Muschamp took it. I mean, when Will Muschamp took that job, Clemson was coming off of what Orange Bowl something and then a loss in the national championship, and so that was 2016. Now you're talking about a team that has followed that up with. National championship, playoff berth, national championship, and so, and combined with that, Kirby's got it in the full gear in Athens. All right, I mean, what are we? What's full gear, folks? <laughs> what in the East? Okay, well, <laughs> folks, what's full? Uh, well, um, yeah, no, but yeah, like this, this has to be uniquely one. I mean, obviously, someone's going to take it because you don't not just get. If you're a coach right now and you're looking at SEC jobs, you're saying, lock me into that fucking buyout. I don't care how I do on the field. The moment I sign that contract, I'm worth at least $20 million to that school. The, the big thing to me is that, and I think Bumani Jones may have hit on this on Twitter today too, South Carolina may have the biggest, I don't know about identity crisis, but they may have the biggest disconnect from what they actually are to how they see themselves in the SEC. I mean, they, they, they've been an average program. Oh, the University of Texas might. Uh... They've been an average program their entire existence, right? I, I have some numbers here. So when South Carolina joined the SEC in 92, they were 0-14 against Florida. And their first win was when Steve Spurrier took the job in his first year at South Carolina. Spurrier went 5-5 five and five against them. And I don't think in South Carolina hasn't beaten them since. Spur your love. It's that's just who they are. They get stomped by the big boys. They're supposed to rabble with the middle class, and they spend a good amount of time in the lower tier as well. It's just who they've been forever. Are, are they the most keeping up with the Joneses football program in college football? They like <laughs> like like, like are, are are they the most like. We have to spend outside of our means to get the Range Rover, even though we absolutely can't afford it. And everyone knows that the job that we work doesn't pay to support this lifestyle, but we're just hemorrhaging debt trying to survive. 
I mean, if you, if you think about it from like a military standpoint, they've been forever. They've always been outflanked on all sides by Tennessee, even when Tennessee's bad, uh, Clemson and Georgia, and it's the gap's only getting wider, except maybe with Tennessee, but that's a different discussion. There's not just like this. We know not like I, I under, like I think most people thought, obviously, Hall of Fame coach Steve Spurrier probably. But at that stage in his career, does that almost make what he did there that more impressive? Maybe it was just me and like having my head in the sand. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Like it, Spurrier on his whatever job after doing the Redskins deal after having success at Florida, you know, you figure that's almost the mail it in stage of his career and to win that the level that he did at a school that clearly is not returning to that anytime soon is really just kind of wild. The more and more I thought about, it. I thought about that a couple of times this weekend, uh, watching just the abomination of a product that South Carolina put on the field. It's a reti- It was a retirement job. I mean, he he left the NFL to go live in South Carolina. It was a retirement well, job. Yeah, the the first the first away game I went to as a Georgia fan, uh, a Steve Spurrier team beat what ended up being the number three team in the country, thirty five to seven. That was a team that finished number three that year. They beat them thirty five to seven, and then I I mean that was like when I went to like got to college, like South Carolina was the fucking game. Like the previous two years, it had been bloodbath games. The year that I got there, they got killed. The year after, it was two top 10 teams. Like, as dumb as it sounds, like South Carolina got calcified into my mind as like a meaningful program that could do you harm. Now, as a Georgia fan, the Georgia Techs and the Vanderbilts of the world can do you harm. But like they were, they took Tennessee's spot for that. Like, like they were the one that really capitalized off of Tennessee just completely losing their marbles, like post Fulmer. And to, yeah, that has to make that the most frustrating, one of the most frustrating headspaces to be in as a fan. Cause less than 10 years ago, they had just beaten Clemson for a fifth time in a row. And now you're looking up in 2020 and just like, what in the hell happened? Here's I, I'm like I, I mean this in all sincerity. When is the next time they beat Clemson? It's gotta be post Dabo. <laughs> it's gotta be post. Like, Dude, I, is I, it like? I mean, is it like like are they gonna go twenty years without beating them? Clemson has to whiff on the higher post Dabo, and a few of those Dabo classes have to filter out. That's the only way. <laughs> that, so you're there's literally no, there's literally no chance within the next. 15 years yeah i mean that not definitely not consistent consistently right like could you get a coach in there for south carolina's at its peak at like a nine-ish win level and you know clemson has the year from hell from an injury standpoint and some fluke happens but in terms of like even competing with them on a short you know short-term consistent basis it's 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 long long way away yeah there's there there will never be a reason to bet against clemson in that game for like you said, Andrew, the next ten to fifteen years, and it's the South Carolina team that ends up doing it is not going to be like the sneaky South Carolina team that people are thinking a new coach put it together. It's going to be some like oh seven ass pit like four and seven let's ruin Clemson season type team. Like it's 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 going to be some ugly like rainy game. There's they, like, they win time of possession thirty eight to twenty two or something upset. Like exactly. That. Like, like like there's no there's no world in which they just show up to a game and just beat Clemson straight up. I don't think like within the next ten or fifteen years. 
Speaking of just showing up and winning, uh, folks, USC is 2-0, and and I think they, they really want to be 0-2 at this point. We, <laughs> Clay, Helton, Clay Helton is coaching himself into an extension. <laughs> so this is where I'm just going to uh, talk as if I've watched, uh, I mean, even one minute of Pac-12 football right now. Um, but sure, yeah, that seems, that seems like something that has happened. A, a good buddy of mine covers USC for the athletic. Uh, he used to cover Ole Miss for the Clarion Ledger. And, like, that's, like, the closest thing to a Marvin Lewis situation college football has seen in some time. Like, like ninety, a good 90% of those people are still just kind of utterly in disbelief that Clay Helton is still around. Like, it's almost like a Marvin Lewis, whatever the hell the guy's name is that owns the Bengals to where – you know, there's that one year in like 18 where everyone was certain that Marvin Lewis was gone. Like this is final year, and then he got an extension instead. And like they, yeah, they, they, they had gone like I, I think he was the ho- head coach for like 15 or 16 years, and he won one playoff game. <laughs> no, like, no, like, no, no, Andrew, Andrew, he won zero. Zero. They won the division three times. They didn't win a playoff. He, he never won one. No. <laughs> Oh my God! I thought that Carson Palmer year they won one before he got hurt. Holy shit! No, they, that was the first year they made the playoff, and then his knee snapped half on the first play. That was 2005. <laughs> I remember watching that game at a middle school basketball tournament that I was playing in. That, that that's how long you've been there. They had zero business winning. The Arizona State game was particularly disgusting. You kind of assume that during somewhat Arizona, because they're such a train wreck, like, okay, they'll probably pull this out of their ass. The Arizona State game to open the year was like I had turned off the television because I had had action on that game. And I was like, and it was 11 points, so I still like, had the Arizona State. But then I was like at someone's house later, and I was like, oh, my score app's fucked up. It's saying USC won. And then, of course, like it apparently actually happened. Well, the the problem with um, if I know anything about college football fans being rational, though, it, these are probably the worst type of wins that you can have as a fan because it it it, it argues against anything that you think is going like like all it's doing is prolonging the inevitable. Like it, like mm-hmm. what Clay would actually have to do this season to retain his job, I think in a pandemic year, like. It's probably at this point, like, what go three and one the rest of the way. Like, 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 but, but what that does as a fan of one of these teams is, it's like you're not any better, like, pedigree wise. You're not any better recruiting wise. You can't capitalize on a fucking five and one shortened season. And so, like, if I were a UFC fan, I would almost rather be losing these games. I know that sounds crazy, but like if Clay Helton is not, I use the analogy is X person, player, coach, whatever, going to be the part of the next X great team. So is Clay Helton going to be the coach of the next great USC team? If the answer is no, you almost want to get rid of them as soon as possible. It, right? It's hard to define great the way you're saying it, because obviously, like you said, and, you're right. USC fans should want to get anything that gets Helton out of there. What happens if USC goes six and two and they lose to Oregon by ten in the Pac-12 championship and they win, you know, whatever the Holiday Bowl is going to be this year? It's like that's a good season, right? And you, you don't fire a guy after that. 
it is, but like no one's enjoying it. Yeah, that's that's the problem. Is like, oh, okay, cool. Like we just took like a dumb as shit college football. What it really, I think, is is it just makes the people that really wanted him gone last year just add more fuel to that fire to where it's like now we have two more years of Clay Helton, two more years of like not like ultimately just band-aiding over what I think these people think is like a deeper seated problem because like even even if you go 6 and 2 and you lose by 10 to Oregon and then you go to the fucking Holiday Bowl or whatever that's still like in the minds of the people that want USC back to glory that's still not like that good like that good is it they they need no, to fight, they, they need to fight. Oh, sorry, go on, Rip. oh no I was just say real quick there was a different dynamic you remember like even to the kind of the end of time like Mark Rick still had a faction of supporters, even when it kind of got bad towards the end. And there was obviously at the very end, there was a consensus like, all right, it's probably time. But even like the last years, you're almost from talking to Antonio and just kind of, I found it fascinating because for a while, the situations between him and Matt Luke were not that dissimilar. Whereas like he's going on almost two and a half full years of a full 95 to 98% of the fan base wanting him gone and the athletic director being stubborn. Like, I guess they're just like, like a Helton Stan at this point doesn't even really exist. So it's like a man against his own fan base. What it, it really would be like the, the most, I think apt was like the O the coach O situation Again, we start living in this world again that we did last episode where the 2019 title for them just didn't exist. But like that that weird like you you are the interim coach that ends up endearing yourself, but you never end up like convinced like half of the fan base is never going to be sold on an interim as a hire, especially at a program like LSU or USC, where you inevitably think that you can just go out and get anyone, even though the current times might not suggest that. And so I I think that you have this faction that has never, ever believed in Helton and then only exacerbated by the fact that he hasn't been that good, but has been just good enough to stay alive. So like you have only drug out, like, at this point, he has to just be picking up more haters. Like, I I don't know who could be looking at USC football right now and just saying, like, Clay Helton is clearly the answer. Have we ever seen such a gradual descent into just this, like, mediocrity? Like, it's because... Indirect was pretty bad. And Clay Helton... And Clay... I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate, how a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word, Broomgate. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring... 
The best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Helton's first year... They they won the Rose Bowl against Penn State, yeah. and then year two it was a weird year because the Rose Bowl was a the Rose Bowl was playoff bowl. Year two they won the Pac twelve, um, and they sweep Stanford, which was a big deal back in twenty seventeen. And just we've just seen it slowly, slowly turn into this. I think they need to fire Clay Helton and just bring him back on as the interim. That's how you unlock the full Clay Helton experience <laughs> well, descending like that not to pivot like speaking of descending at least on the scoreboard they've won two games what the fuck is happening in ann arbor well wait can 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 we make can i can i get one quick point in about uh slow slow descent i i was thinking stanford though because I, just as a, as a school that is just kind of west coast descent like power that has descended into nothingness like it, Michigan, on one hand, seems as if, like, when Michigan sucks, everyone knows because they complain about it the loudest. And when they're good, everyone knows because they cheer about it. They're the most annoying in, in all polarities. Um, but, like, I feel like we have this weird, like, the these programs that kind of jumped up and 
like around like 2013 that were like, oh shit, that could be really interesting that's going on there, just like have really just farted and fell ever since then. And I think Sanford and Michigan are both examples of that. I, I think those it's almost an apples to oranges comparison because it's dude, it's never gonna matter at Stanford. Like Harbaugh went three and eight his first year, I think, and I'm pretty sure he got an extension after that. Um, and I know the standard's different now because of Harbaugh, but I don't know, man. David Shaw can never go better than seven and five the rest of his career, and he he can die the Stanford head coach if he wants. He's also and giving them down like they like you talk about you know Michigan people love to bitch about like their academics and all that and it's sort of a horseshit. To Stanford's the case where it's actually true. Like the 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 <laughs> having to pull from recruiting wise makes what you know him doing in that eleven game ish ten game ish threshold he was hitting there consistently for a while even that more impressive like when they like when stanford di- when michigan dips it's kind of funny but when stanford dips it's kind of like okay you know with the way modern recruiting is it kind of makes sense yeah stanford can't stack like these other power programs stanford can't stack like three or four top 15 classes on top of each other they've never been able to so the fact that they did what they did under harbaugh and then under early to mid shaw era it's kind of remarkable <laughs> unremarkable what's up this is his 10th season yeah no exactly and he's won the division and he won the division five times and they've just kind of like i guess that's more like from 11 to 17 they won the division five times and then they just have farted their way into irrelevance over the last three seasons like into kj costello versions of of like seven and five to I I feel like I'm looking up now and it's it's Stanford and Northwestern playing in some bullshit bowl game that I didn't know existed. They just keep cloning Kevin Hogan and he just keeps getting out. <laughs> he keeps going out there throwing throwing 19 touchdowns and eight picks. That's just this is what he does every year. If they ever get dumb enough to can him though, like don't you think Shaw's a guy that if in the right situation, I would actually say most like he would. I think he's a guy that if he gets a second job and they kill him, he's going to crush it at the second job, and it's going to like seem like it came out of nowhere, but not really. Like I would want David Shaw coaching. Could you justify David Shaw and Derek Mason just switching jobs next year and no, no fan base, either fan base really raising an issue? Stanford would probably be pretty pissed, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I don't know though. Like I, I'm still convinced that Derek Mason is like Derek Mason is more resource poor than I think any other coach that deals in, in terms of like standard deviations of where you have to operate. Because at least David Shaw, you're recruiting to Stanford. Vanderbilt is like, yeah, we have some of the like we have all the academic requirements, none of the pedigree. You're in Nashville, so you're going to feel out of place, and you're probably going to get your teeth kicked in. The only reason and the dysfunction in the athletic department where they made it clear they don't give a shit about football. Yeah, and exactly. it's the the one thing Stanford fans could maybe latch on to is that Derek Mason was a very successful DC at Stanford at Stanford before that's he came to Vanderbilt. And that's it. And it's like, how much do Stanford fans actually care about the head coach? I mean, like you said, they won the division five times in seven years. Uh, that happens at any other Power Five school. They're selling out their stadium, and that's just that, that's never going to be the case at a place like Stanford. But at the same time, like I mean, I I legitimately think that Stanford could win a national championship and not and not have their stadium 
80% full week one of the following season. It's just a different world out there. Like, it's I, just not priority. It's just not priority. No, I've, I've never been like, and granted, Cal wasn't a very good program, but I was working in-house for the athletic department when Ole Miss went and played out in Berkeley, and I guess I was 18. And like, you drive up to the stadium, and like, it's just a whole different vibe. And most people are tailgating on top of this little like foothill mountain with their chair backs to where they can watch the game in the ravine without actually having to pay for tickets. Like most of the people are sitting outside the stadium, like watching the game from this little like cliff top instead of going in and like people float in in the second quarter. It's just not, there's so much shit going on out there. People don't really care about college football. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I forgot who said this. It was a long time ago. I heard this. Cal is just Stanford's cousin that didn't get into Stanford. But it's but they're in the same family, you know? So it's the <laughs> which is a shame because like the campus is sick. Like the stadium's in a really cool place. Like it's a beautiful area. They just honestly, if I had that much stuff to do, that many professional sports teams, and I guess in Southern California's case, and the beach, I wouldn't give a shit about college football either. I mean, yeah, that's that's ultimately what what it really comes down to is like we're showing our ass here caring about football this much because it is plainly obvious that we have nothing better to do. They're like, yeah. pound 18 Michelob Ultras in a parking lot in and Cor- then, go Ballot, stand Oregon. In some, <laughs> then some weird, go stand in some weird concrete cathedral for six hours. Sure, why not? Everyone else is in shape on the beach doing hot, fun people things. Watch a, a couple small points piggybacking off of that. It one, it underscores how spectacular those USC teams were in the early to mid two thousands. That they were in Los Angeles and sold out that stadium every week. And number two, it makes sense why Larry Scott was like incentivizing uh, officials to give USC favorable calls. Because if USC doesn't have it rolling, I, I just don't pay attention to college football west of the Mississippi. I just I, I can't. You know, <laughs> what am I going to watch? They should lean straight into gambling because no one would ever watch Pac-12 games if it were not for them trying to get out of hole at 11 o'clock on a Saturday evening. <laughs> they need to embrace I've, I've, I've said this. This is, this is off topic. The moment that they start getting live betting to where I can bet balls and strikes in baseball and what pitch it's going to be, I'm back. I am. I have not watched a nine-inning, full nine-inning baseball game since Game Seven of the 2016 World Series, and I am back the moment I can become a full-on degenerate betting on fucking I don't know Trevor Bauer's meltdowns in the middle of the game. Uh, folks, we, we we touched on it briefly earlier, uh, but we, we we have to talk about. What the hell is going on at LSU? I know this seems like a weekly segment now, but there's new shit that just comes up every week, and this seems like the worst one well, that it quite literally is the worst of it. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, we we ingest say the world's most ethical college football podcast, uh, so uh, I, I do feel uh, the need to. I mean, I guess somewhat seriously talk about what is going on because. Uh, this was a conversation that I was having earlier, and and for those that don't know, 
Um, essentially, uh, I think it was nine. Um, it, it came out today that uh, nine uh, cases of either, I want to say, sexual misconduct, uh, sexual assault, or what they called violent dating was reported to the Baton Rouge Police Department, and nothing has come of it. And this is all stemming from, they said, all under under the tutelage or under the Ed Orgeron era. Um, so within the last four years, it would seem. Um, but I mean, I I want to like make one point in that. I mean, this is like firing type stuff. I mean, this is like should be real real names attached to people having consequences with this from those that were enabling this. But second, also like this is not ab like I don't think LSU is unique here at all. Like the amount the the leeway in which these college athletes are like the way that like I don't want to go about criticizing college athletes who have done nothing wrong but as someone who has lived in nowhere other than college towns my entire life like these are places that as KP has said I mean Ed Orgeron has the keys to the largest economic vehicle in the state that economic vehicle is essentially run by 18 to 20 year old kids and those 18 to 20 year old kids that make dumb fucking college decisions sometimes and sometimes heinous college decisions. And I know I'm, I'm rambling here, but a lot like this is a serious point in college football that across the board needs to be addressed somehow, because I mean, we've seen it at Baylor, which is maybe one of, one of the worst and most egregious incidences, but like the, and then we see it at, at like pockets. I mean, Georgia has had issues of this. Alabama's had issues of this. Of just like players being violent with with women on the team and whatnot, or, or players on the team being violent with women. And like, I don't know the way that this is correctable, but I do know that there are not the backstop. Like when the college football coaches are acting as the moral backstop, and it has been proven time and time again that their first priority is not anything other than like winning football games and any way shape or form they can do that to win football games they will do like we run into a real authority problem on like who the fuck is the adult in the room right and i I think college football coaches they they sort of get it wrong when they obviously you know and great point you're right their number one job is to win football games but their biggest that's their biggest job but their biggest responsibility is just you know being in charge of 85 to 115 young men 365 days a year. Like that's, I mean, they're just in charge. So I I do think that they, their primal instinct is just to become protective. And I think that pays off when you see victimless crimes, right? I mean, say whatever you want about marijuana policies in this, you know, in this world, but you know, when Nick Saban was at LSU and even out Alabama and, you know, Kirby's kind of brought this to Athens as well. It's like, hey, like, okay, my kid had a dime bag of weed on him. That's okay. Who's hurt here? What, what's the issue? So just, okay. So we're going to rally behind this guy. And we're going to take care of this for him. And it's just, and in victimless crimes. I actually think that is the absolute right decision to make. And when you're talking morale, like when you're talking, I don't mean to cut you off, but like, if you're like, like all from a moral argument, like, 
no, I'm not going to kick a kid off a team who, which this might be his only angle, like his only opportunity to like really, really benefit his life for what is now legal in half the state, half the country. Yeah, exactly. And small stuff like that. Like, I don't, I, I mean, like Andrew, you, you know, this as well. Like there's probably players with like mountains of parking tickets, right? Like it's a fucking parking ticket. Yeah, yeah. Okay, who cares? Um, but coaches kind of start to conflate that when these players actually do commit crimes that have victims that have real consequences where, where people are hurt and you see the ripple effects across an entire campus. And, you know, when that happens, there's a couple of recourses you can discipline internally, which you probably should do. And I think you should also discipline externally by in almost all these cases, immediate dismissal. But when, when it gets to a point like we've seen in the LSU report where it almost seems institutional uh, to where it, it, it feels baked in that that's where the really egregious, you know, instances take place because, you know, players start to think not that's what they're supposed to do, but they start thinking there's no way this can ever come back to hurt to bite me. Yeah. I got, I guess, two serious points on this and one, not as serious one, not a fan of Gannett. I think what they're doing to newspapers is a travesty, but what pretty outstanding reporting from USA Today to put something that to put something together that requires that amount of documentation takes a lot of time and a lot of fortitude and a lot of fighting. So I, I read that I didn't like when I opened that story today, I didn't think it was going to be as lengthy or as detailed as it was. And I ended up spending nearly a half an hour reading it at my desk at work, which Killed a half an hour for lunch, which is sweet. But great reporting by all of the people involved in that. Um, two, and my other takeaway was like the Title IX system, as it's currently constructed, does not work in the sense that like it allows these schools too many ways to weasel around it and to bend it. Like it seems like too loose in the sense that like there's too many ways for athletic departments and to, to kind of get around it and also at the same time have people who are like – throw their hands up in the air and be like, I technically did the right thing by the letter of the rule or whatever, which is just not morally the case at all. And then the third one is if you're just, and I saw this across the internet, which is like not anywhere close to like the most important part of this. But like, if you're an Ole Miss person looking at this, your football program got hit with a lack of institutional control a two-year bull bid and decimating scholarship reductions for giving kids free pizza, allegedly giving Leo Lewis $60,000, and having two kids sleep on some asshole's couch that work for the school. Well, LSU has now funneled money, through, or stolen money from a children's hospital to pay some football player-related dad. This, on top of whatever the hell's minor shit you know goes on, and nothing has fucking happened. Like, how in the world is that even remotely justifiable? How is this not a lack of institutional control, like, as of tomorrow? Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it to a couple of points. Um, one, they absolutely hate young and especially young black kids getting paid. So the, uh, Mark won against Leo Lewis for being young and black there. Mm-hmm. Um, two, it is hard to uh, uh, have a lack of institutional control when the people funneling the money from the children's hospital are part of the institution. Um, and so that, that, that is uh, an issue. And third, and this is back to the LSU point that is, 
this is actually like made my fucking stomach turn, which is the worst part, just because I think that it, it truly shows like the heinous nature of the way that they are operating internally was nine accounts, six bench players and three starters. Guess, guess the six dismissals. Yeah, just it's <laughs> like like Darius Geis was not, and then there were Jacob Phillips was one, and then there was another one. It was Grant Delpit. Oh, Grant Delpit, yeah, yeah, that's and, and uh, so neither three, all three of those, not an issue, and then but the six other ones of the the players that didn't play, completely gone, and, and that's really what it comes down to is this is a big deal to us. If it doesn't affect the football program, Allah, does it affect the bottom line? I mean, that's all, that, that's all this is. And to add on top of that, I thought one of the ways that, whether it was intentionally or intentionally, the USA Today story did a good job of outlining is how, like, in a very organized fashion, they seem to feel like they see they, they gave off the illusion that they were disorganized. Like I, I don't even know how to articulate this point, but you could tell officials at LSU were on the same page in terms of we're going to fumble this around and send these poor victims. I mean, the, the, I was like, it was like the most stomach churning part of it was the victims trying to get access to their own police reports and having fucking like school officials and you know whatever police department was in charge of it, just kind of sending them on wild goose chases. It's like, what the fuck is going on here? And to bring up something you said earlier, you talked about how this is not unique to LSU or something. I think that was indicative. They interviewed that woman at Temple who studies this type of stuff. And if there's enough for someone to specialize in and study it, you probably have a widespread problem in terms of college athletics. Yeah, and I mean, I, something I've been very uh, – this is just uh, the the whole summer of Drew Brees and everything. Like, it, it got me even more interested in the way that, like, Messiah complexes work and just, like, how some of these people, like, Drew Brees on a goddamn Yahoo Finance interview thinks that it, it – it, like, you get to a point, I think, as certain athletes, and you are uh, – you reach this point – through certainly things that you do on your own, but also through the enablers in your life and like the position that you're afforded. And there is just like this, this veil of like infallibility that we bestow on all of these kids from the camp series to the recruiting processes all onto campus. And like, I know we talk about like leverage on this this show a lot, and especially in relation to like college football players generally don't have leverage when it's coming to collective bargaining or, or all of these things. But like one thing that a lot of these like big name recruits kind of do have leverage on is like they they kind of operate with their coach or with their team with infallibility if they need to. So a guy like Darius Geis, who is running around legitimately just committing sex crimes on campus gets to operate with an air of infallibility because of the complex that the Catholic eyes of the world where KP and I went to high school where you are the greatest, you, you are, you are going to be a number one pick. You are all of these things. Like they all feed into this ego. Like this is my attitude. And therefore I couldn't possibly be in the wrong, like the, the Ron Swanson is the, uh, what do you, uh, 
I am an award winner. Therefore, uh, anything that is my attitude is the attitude of an award winner because I won an award. Like, I, I think it's like very simple. And again, I know I'm, I'm, I'm rambling again, but like that there is something that really needs to be discussed about like the, I, I, I don't know how you rein in people who have never been reined in before, I guess. It's like like we said. It's not sprinkled on top. It is is literally baked in, and it, it's going to take a very long time, if ever, for a real reckoning to come in college football. Um, you would think that you know after the Baylor situation, programs would take this a lot more seriously. If not even from a moral standpoint, it's that I mean the NCAA tried to nuke Baylor football. Uh, they you know they did a pretty good job of I think punishing them, but. I, I mean, if this stuff is still happening, I mean, not if this stuff is happening on college campuses everywhere, not just LSU. You know, uh, there's, I, I don't know, man. It's 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 tough to hear everything that's happened to see Ed Orgeron go from just you know all the B. I, I don't care about the BS with his wife and the the pictures or whatever at the resort. I clearly do not give a shit about that. What I do care about is when his player got pulled over and he had a gun pulled on him by the Baton Rouge Police Department, and he just said, "We have to learn to, um, you know, find common ground." And now the fact that he's enabling such a terrible uh, culture to continue to permeate throughout his program—it's I—I don't. I've there, there's no reason for anyone to defend Ed Orgeron. But if you go to Tiger Droppings right now, that's pretty much all you'll see. And I guess like reeling it back to a much less consequential like as like part of this is like what like what is Ed's future now? There is never like has has there ever been a more complicated situation for a coach coming off a national championship? I mean, he had like, the LSU story that or the the Ross Dellinger story about like how he's like the the like you know hero of all the Cajun people down in West Louisiana comes to mind. It's a very well written story. Has there ever been a quicker fall like? Like what does that like? What does twenty twenty one look like for Ed? Like I, I'm, I'm curious to that. Is there a sing, is there a single thing over the last three months to justify you know, Ed Orgeron still having a job? Okay. I I I do think, and just from being in Baton Rouge, the one thing that I I feel like we're very we we, we really quickly like we want to know the winners and the losers of the trade. Like we're we're it, sports culture is very obsessed with like assigning blame, assigning credit, doing all of these things. I think it's been pretty apparent over the last, call it six months, six months, three months, whatever you want to say, that they have assigned credit to the national championship away from Ed Orgeron. And, and it's, it's Joe Burrow, it's Joe Brady, it's all of these different. And so with that, I think they removed the credit from Ed Orgeron to make the firing process or the inevitable firing easier and i think this just like it makes it too easy because i feel like this is just like we're gonna fire O, like that's excising the tumor as opposed to really what kp's talking about like this shit is baked in like we knew what like we knew that like less this this wasn't different under less miles and it won't be different under the next guy and thus there's like a meaningful addressing of this like i i think we all know what's going to happen they're going to fire o act like pin everything on him and then the next guy it's going to be business as usual yeah th- so he he issued i don't know if you guys saw the statement he issued today it was a, it was it was another nothing burger um he said they oh, yeah, 
he said, um, okay, I think I have audio here, so let me know if you guys can hear this. Nothing. You're gonna have to you're gonna I can't hear anything. You're gonna have to do an impression alongside of him. Okay. Um he said we need to support and protect victims of sexual and of, of violence and sexual abuse of any kind. There is no place in our society, nor on this campus or in our football program, for any behavior of this type. When accusations are made, we have a legal and moral obligation to report every allegation to the university's Title IX office so due process can be implemented. I have in the past and will continue to take appropriate action and comply with reporting protocols. I have confidence today that the university is working to address our policies and processes when allegations arise. That is all I'm going to say at this time. So again, like, like you said, it's, it's passing the blame. It's just like, oh, I did what I was supposed to do, but somewhere along the line, someone else didn't. It's so- yeah, and, and what it really just, it, what I gathered from that is like, I abided by our bullshit policies, like is, is what I think he could have just like surmised that as. Like Rippy was saying earlier, like obfuscation is the name of the game here. Like the, the, there's a reason none of these people have legitimate recourse because when there's legitimate recourse, there becomes a... a a more identifiable pattern. When you make these people run a wild goose chase, then you can then you can say, "Oh no, those were those were lone wolves. Those were bad apples." Yada yada yada. This isn't a systemic problem that needs to be addressed within our largest economic vehicle. Well, yeah, and so my problem with, is I was kind of, exactly I was kind of getting alluding to that earlier. Like obviously, Title Nine in theory is like do like the idea of it is very good. But when it comes to stuff like this, and I'm sure when they wrote the ty- this legislation originally, they were not having, I guess, necessarily this in mind. But like that is my problem with all this. It leaves too much room for God- for people to be able to throw their hands up and like technically by the rule book, I did what I like was required to do and nothing else, which is obviously morally reprehensible a lot of the time. But from a cover your own ass standpoint, I guess that's what it is. There's no better way to articulate it. It leaves too much room for individuals to cover their own ass instead of actually do the right thing or the common sense thing. And that's what kind of bothers me about like how it's structured right now. But you brought up an interesting point a second ago is like when they fire Ed and they pin all of this on him, how much of that is like, I don't want this to sound like a defensive Ed Orgeron, but like how much of that is fair? Because in a lot of these stories, like, you know, I mean, Different, way different scenarios. But like Joe Paterno, you know, Art Browse had the you know terrible quote of like, "Why is she hanging out with those guys? Those are some bad boys," or whatever the fuck he said. Like Ed, the Darius guys thing, I think originally happened in 2016, where Ed was just coming on his interim. In that right, he was interim in 2016, and then obviously a lot more instances happened. That I guess, like, how fair is it to blame a hundred percent of it on Ed? Like, it seems like some of that is unfair, but also at the same time, I don't really feel bad about it. it, it it's systems, you know. It's individuals versus systems, and it's easy. And you know, it, it's easy to just blame an individual. And in this case, Ed Orgeron does shoulder a lot of you know what went wrong here. But it, it's like we said, it's the entire system that's in place, and it. Yeah, there, there's a uh, a. a uh, recently deceased, like uh, political commentator that I followed, that his his essential m- mantra was be critical of systems and be kind to people, and I, I think that there's a little bit of that in, in what Rippy says, and, and but it 
it's hard when Ed Orgeron like is an integral part of the system. And so it's like, yeah, you do want to look at Ed Orgeron like, all right, is it fair to blame what is essentially an entire like bad culture or whatever on legitimately one person, one individual, especially when there are carryovers from before he was there. But also it's like, if you are a, a part of this system, then it is a, you do have a responsibility to not only report it, but like, if you are, if you're going through these title nine processes several times, at least nine times, it would sound like, then it would seem as if that there's something systemic that you need to address as a football coach and maybe not just bandaid up or whack-a-mole the problem every time it comes up. And adding on to that, like you, I guess the counter argument to the, like, I guess argument I didn't necessarily make, but like is like, there is like the, the, the Ed Orgeron is the one man that has the power to kind of buck the whole thing and institute his own zero tolerance policy and do the right thing, right? Like he's the one guy that has the power to shirk this whole thing. But he that would like when you control when you control playing time, you control everything. Exactly. Yeah, that that's a great point, Andrew. Um, folks, that's where we're gonna leave it off here. Uh, thanks again for listening. Uh, we. Always appreciate it. As always, like us, you know, review us, rate us five stars, subscribe to us. Um, please send us hate mail. If you have any hate mail, please direct that to at Stevens Andrew on uh, your Twitter app. Uh, folks, have a great evening, morning, afternoon, wherever you're listening to this, and we'll talk to you soon. It was another great week for our fake season uh, flag carrying. Peace.